it would be wise for us to go to the bedside of an aged grandfather and go not expecting to receive a handout, but go with open ears to hear what years of life have taught this elder about the true wealth of life. That is exactly where we plan to go as we join Dave Wurtson, our Truth Encounter Study Leader, in Genesis chapter 48 for The Grandfather's Gift. Have you ever gone to a party where it was not a white elephant? It was not a gag gift and you opened it up and when you opened it up, you honestly thought it was a white elephant and you found yourself scratching your head What in the world am I going to do with this? In fact, if I were to ask you to confess, how many of you have some of those presents up in your attic? And you are waiting till you go far away from here so there will be no chance that you give the gift that you can't figure out what to do with it to the person who gave it to you? Okay? That's the setting of Genesis chapter 48. If I try to interact... With, with two young, not really young, but older teenage boys. You want to picture this morning about a 17-year-old or an 18-year-old or maybe an 18 or 19-year-old. You want to picture these two young men, and you could picture these young men, they've got their chariots, and so we bring it up into a modern thing, they probably drive some really nice Porsches. They have designer clothes. That's the kind of boys that Ephraim and Manasseh were. Their daddy was the prime minister of Egypt. That means he was the number one honcho. If you were Englishman, if I told you that your dad was the prime minister of England, that would carry a lot of clout. It's just like that in ancient Egypt, only more so. Now, their daddy, one afternoon or one morning, grabbed a hold of these two older teenage boys said you can't go for a ride in your chariot, you can't go for a date with your girls, we are going to a special meeting. And their daddy takes them to see their dying grandfather. Have any of you ever had some of those meetings? I've shared with you through the years, my dad used to do this to me only, it wasn't with my own own grandfather, because he passed away when I was just a little kid, and I don't remember him at all. But my dad, every once in a while, used to take me to see what he would consider a patriarch. He might take me to see one of the editors of the Schofield Bible. And I remember as a kid going in, and I remember scratching my head trying to say, like, Dad, why in the world are we driving all these miles? Why are we going in this dusty old house? Look at all this old junky furniture. And then I moved to Midlothian, and all of you are killing yourselves to get some of that old, dumpy, antique furniture. As a kid, you just don't appreciate value systems very well. And I would go in, and my dad would try to bring out the meaning, the meaning of this blessing. And I remember some of these old saints would put their arm on my shoulder, and they would pray for me. And I remember scratching my head, because a lot of times my dad didn't fill me in on what this person did and what his significance was in the history of Christianity. But I, I, I think that my feelings might have been a little bit like Ephraim and Manasseh. Little did Ephraim and Manasseh know that an old grandfather's hand on their head was the most important event that ever took place in their life. 
If I would have asked them what's the most important thing in their life at that time, they might have told me their newest chariot. They might have said it was the designer clothes. It might have said the job that they were going to have in the elite system of Egypt. But you know what? You and I don't know anything at all about the positions they held in Egypt. But you know that the, but that the history of their descendants, the history of their family was determined by an old, feeble grandfather's hand on their head. And the Christmas gift that Jacob gave to Ephraim and Manasseh was the most important gift they ever received. And the danger is that they might not have appreciated it. I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 48 because this chapter is really important because at this Christmas season, as I look around, I see grandfathers, I see fathers, I see young men and their daughters, I see all different kinds of family structures. And what I want you to get into is the real importance, the importance of family histories and the importance of the promise. Let's look at Genesis 48, and you'll see the introduction I've been sharing with you. The chapter begins with, sometime later, Joseph was told that his father was very ill. This is about 17 years after Jacob came down into Egypt. He's about 147 years old, and when a 147-year-old man gets ill, you better go and see him, because the law of probability is that he's not going to be here that much longer. It says that Joseph took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. And when Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on his bed. So we've got this old man who has become sick, who when his grandsons come to visit him, musters up enough strength to kind of sit up in the bed. Jacob said to Joseph, the first thing that Jacob does is recount his family history. One of the things that I would challenge you to do as families at holiday times, at a Christmas time, is recount your family history. I ask you daddies, daddies, have you ever gathered your family around you and shared the important facts of your family history? Have you ever shared with your sons and your daughters the important turning points of your life? That's the scene. Grandfather Jacob has his two grandsons and his son. He's very near to death. And he begins to share. The first thing that he shares is his family history. God Almighty appeared to me. He appeared to me at Luz. That's the city of Bethel. Luz is just the ancient name for Bethel, which is the name that Jacob gave to that site. It was in the land of Canaan. And there God blessed me. And God said to me, I am going to make you fruitful. And I will increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples and I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. That's the family history. Let me review it for you. Some of you haven't been able to be with us as we study Genesis chapter 28 and Genesis chapter 35. When Jacob was fleeing from his brother Esau, he was a vagabond. He had to flee from his home. It would be like a boy leaving Midlothian and heading out into West Texas. And he gets way out there in the middle of nothing. And he puts a stone for his pillow at night and he goes to sleep. But in the middle of the night, he has the first important event of his life. God appears to him. 
And that's the very powerful passage where we have Jacob seeing the stairway to heaven. Remember that? And he saw the angels of God ascending and descending up and down and he found out that Bethel, the house of God, was the intersection between that spiritual world and the material world. The thing that grandfather Jacob is sharing with his grandsons is, sons, there was a time in my life when the spiritual world intersected with my physical world. It was at a time in my life where physically I thought I had nothing. It was at a time in my life where physically I had lost my mom and dad. I was heading to a foreign country. I was a young man fleeing from my life. From a human standpoint, there was no hope. But at that moment in time, the God of heaven, who is really there, appeared to me. And he made a promise. And look at the promise. He promised Jacob that he would bless him. He promised Jacob that this Lord Almighty God would bless this young fleeing man. He told him that he would make him a mighty nation. He would make him fruitful and increase in numbers. Remember when Jacob received that promise, he was just one single man running away from home. But the Lord God of heaven said, you are going to become a mighty people. You're going to become a great nation. Look what else he promised him. He said, I will make you a community of peoples and I will give this land, the land where you have pillowed your head on a stone, I'm going to give you that land for an everlasting possession. And Jacob never forgot that moment in Bethel, in the house of God. He never forgot that moment when God made a promise to him. In essence, you might say that at that moment, Jacob became a promised child. He became a child of God. He was promised that he would become part of a great company of people, which you know from history became the people of Israel. He was also promised, he was also promised that he would possess the land. Now for you that are here in this room this morning, all of that is old hat. In fact, it's really, I have to work at it to get you excited about that and to get you to realize the significance of that promise. It's no big deal. Sure, there's millions of Jews. I grew up back on the East Coast. Some of my best friends, my playmates as a kid in New Jersey, were Jewish kids. It was no miracle that there were millions of them around us. It was no miracle that they were the ones that when I went to interview at Syracuse Medical School, that 75% of, the, of my friends that were waiting for an interview with me were all Jewish kids. It wasn't any miracle. It was a fact of my life. So big deal. But it was a miracle. It all started out with a promise of an almighty God to a fleeing young man, you're going to give birth to a nation. And when Jacob received that promise, there was no way that it could ever come true. But it has in your history. It's a part of everyday life across the world. What about the land? You know, Jacob was, had his head on a stone. In fact, he spent his whole life with his head on a stone. He spent his whole life kind of as a Bedouin, traveling around the land in his tent. Never did own the land of Canaan. In fact, you know when he's giving this promise to his grandsons, as he puts his hand on their head, he doesn't own anything except a little track of land that we'll find out later. And I want you to feel some of that tension. 
I want you to feel some of that tension because some of the young men and the women in this room are entering a phase in life where you're beginning to say, what's the use of the promise? I think I need to live for chariots. I think I need to live for designer clothes. I think I need to live for power positions in Egypt because that's where the real story is. Some of you are going to go through some time in your life, you say, man, what's the big deal about that promise? And I want you to think about Genesis 48. Because every single one of you in this room have a life history. Dad, you have a life history to share. Mom, you have a life history to share. Every single one of us are living out a value system. Some of you can't have a family time because the only life history you have is depression and negativism and just working a job. And life has just fizzled. In fact, when I tell you to get together and for a daddy to gather his family around and to share the significant events in their life, there's nothing really to share because life has turned out to be nothing but black coal. And if that's so, you need to really listen to me because maybe your family history could start out this morning. Maybe this morning could become your house of God, your Bethel, where the spiritual world impinges upon your physical life, and you hear the promise of God. So you got the scene, we've got Jacob and this elderly grandfather. How many of you kids have ever had your grandfather tell you stories about when he was a kid and some of his experiences? Almost all of you have had that, that have a grandfather that's living. Well, that's the scene that's going on. Well, the next thing that Jacob does is he adopts these two boys into his family. Look what it says. It says in verse 5, Now then your two sons born to you, this is Joseph's, Two sons born to you in the land of Egypt. Before I came down to you, this is verse 5, these boys here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine. Just as Reuben and Simeon, Reuben and Simeon were Jacob's two oldest boys. And now Jacob is saying that the sons of Joseph are going to be equal in their right of possession to the two oldest boys that he had, Reuben and Simeon. Any children born to you after them will be yours. In the territory they will inherit, they will be reckoned under the name of their brothers. In other words, any other children that Joseph have, their inheritance will only come under Ephraim and Manasseh. As I was returning from Padamaram to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan while we were still on the way a little distance from Ephrathah. So I buried her there beside the road. That is Bethlehem. I buried her beside the road of Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. Now, this is kind of, you know, a lot of the commentators, when they read this, it's kind of like the rem. Have you ever had old men that get into a conversation and they introduce one subject, and then all of a sudden it's like there was a mental block in their mind, they jump to another one? Anybody have conversations? Some of us do that right now when we're not too old. Well, that's what it appears that Jacob did. But be wary of these old men. Some of them are not quite as frail in their head as you think they are. And what Jacob is really doing, you see, he not only met God at Bethel once when he was a young man, but after he came back into the land, after his daughter was raped in Genesis chapter 39, and after after his sons massacred the entire village of Shechem, it was a dark time to say the least. 
At that time, God appeared to Jacob again. And you know what he did? In Genesis 35, he gave him the same promise again. He said, you're going to own the land. You're going to become a great nation. In fact, you know, this time God said, kings, kings are going to come from you. You're going to have kings come from you. And he also promised them, you're going to be the possessor of this promised land. And so twice in Jacob's life, he had a personal appearance from God who made a promise to him. And what he's telling these boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, is you're going to inherit the promise. God made a promise to me. He gave me a great gift. He gave me the gift of this land. And this land is going to be divided among my 12 boys. And Joseph is going to have two parts in that promise because my precious wife, Rachel, my precious wife, Rachel, died right after I received the promise. And all my life, she was the loved wife. And Joseph, you are the apple of my heart. And your two boys, my two grandsons, are going to get the double portion that the oldest son deserves to get. You see, my boy Reuben, my oldest boy, has blown it. He was immoral in his life. And I'm going to give the sons of Joseph the promise of the firstborn. Because my wife Rachel broke my heart as she departed from me when she gave birth to little Benjamin and she died by Bethlehem and she was buried in Bethlehem. You know, a grandson can miss the significance of those words. Can you hear those words? It's a grandfather sharing with you as boys the way that life goes. It's a grandfather remembering. I lived for many years. I had the joys of being married to my precious jewel called Rachel. But then she died. And when this elderly grandfather mentioned the death of Rachel, I'm sure the tears welled up in his eyes and began to cry. And he buried his precious wife. But I want you to notice where he buried her. He buried her in Bethlehem. Now, for those of you that like mystery stories, you just got a big clue. As God writes this marvelous, marvelous novel that he writes in real history, and as you're reading the pages of Genesis, what God does at the very beginning of the story is to give you just little tiny hints. And here you have a wife, a precious wife, who dies in childbirth. And it's a time of great agony for the son of promise, for Jacob, who became the prince of God, Israel. And he's weeping, and he buries his wife, Rachel, but he buries her in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is just mentioned, just mentioned casually. It just was the place along the road where Rachel died. But if I were to ask you, what do you think of when you think of Bethlehem? Every one of you would think of a way in a manger, no crib for his bed. The little Lord Jesus, where was he born? Tell me. He was born in Bethlehem. You know why Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Because Rachel's buried there. Because hopes and fears and promises and all the tears of life are buried when a precious wife dies. And God loved the world so much that right in that place where Jacob's sorrow became so intense, there was another son of Jacob, a son of Judah, David, 
was born. King David was the great hope of the Old Testament. He was born in Bethlehem. And then the ultimate son of David, the Lord Jesus, was born, you know where, in Bethlehem. And you put the whole story together. And Rachel's death is only met by the promise of the baby born in Bethlehem, who said, if you believe in me, even though you die, yet shall you live. Now that's filling in so many years, hundreds of years, and a lot more revelation of God. But I want you to start to see how the inklings of the story are right back there in the early pages of Genesis. And so elderly grandfather Jacob puts his son on Ephraim's head, puts his hand on Ephraim's head, puts his hand on Manasseh's head, and he blesses these boys and says, you're going to be my boys. You're going to be adopted into my family. Look what else he says in verse 8. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked Joseph, who are these? And that wasn't because he didn't know who his grandsons were. This is kind of a formal family time. A lot like when Esau and Jacob, many years earlier, when Jacob deceived his blind father Isaac. Same kind of a story is being enacted. And so Israel had his eyesight like his father before him. Jacob's eyesight has gone. And so he says, who are these boys? He can hardly see them. So Joseph brings them forward and says, Dad, these are the sons that God has given to me. And Israel said, bring them to me that I might bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him and his father kissed them and embraced them. Granddads, Christmas time is a great time to bless your grandkids. Christmas time is a great time to embrace them and to kiss them. And if ever there was a society that needed to become more Old Testament in a certain area, this is it. You see, we've gotten a long way away from this. Last weekend when we were down in Lake Jackson prison, and I asked the group on Wednesday night, what would you preach on? What would you preach on if you were going to speak to several hundred prisoners? If I were to say, you are on. In five minutes, you're getting up before a group, and we're going to transform Midlothian Bible Church, and instead of being Midlothian Bible Church, they're going to be white-coated Lake Jackson prisoners. You're on. What are you going to speak to them about? Well, that's what you do in a Bill Glass ministry only. You don't have to do that. They bring in special guests. Bill Glass gets up. We're at Lake Jackson. The Ramsey Three unit. Several hundred inmates are there. You know what Bill Glass got up and talked about? Right here, the blessing. He looked at it, all those inmates and said, Inmates, how many of you ever had a dad who looked at you right in the eye and said, You know, son, I really love you. And then he grabbed this son by the shoulders and he hugged him to himself and said, Son, I want you to know you're my special boy. And you are God's gift to me. I want to bless you. And as Bill Glass surely like that's an amazing thing, all these hardened inmates, you know, as he begins to talk to them about a father's blessing, you know what they begin to do? Tears begin to roll down their, down their eyes. You know why? Because over 80% of them are from broken homes. Over 80% of them are from broken homes where daddy never gave them a blessing because most of them don't even know who daddy is. And Bill can go on to share how they can have the daddy in heaven to replace an earthly daddy that they never had. And believe it or not, 
For 25 to 30 minutes, Bill Glass can speak in a prison crusade to prisoners, hardened prisoners, about a grandfather and a daddy who hugs teenage boys. And you know what? You could hear a pin drop, and nobody cusses, and nobody laughs, because it touches something very deep inside. Some of our precious kids in this room are being raised in a family where you get a hug almost every day. Before you go to bed, mom or dad comes in and is right there with you because they love you. Some of you never had that. And God the Father wants to come to you this morning and say, hey, your earthly parent might not have loved you like that. But I'm the one that wrote this book. And God the Father says, I'm the ultimate grandfather. I'm the ultimate father. I'm the ultimate daddy. And I'm a hugger. I'm an embracer. And Bill was sharing with those inmates, you know, his boy Billy is about six foot seven, weighs about 275 pounds, and he's now a grown man. Obviously, I hope he's a grown man. If he grows anymore, that would be kind of tough. And Bill was sharing how he grabbed Billy just the other day, all 275 pounds of him, and he hugged him to himself, and he said, Billy, I want you to know, you're my special boy. I'm so glad God gave to me. I want you to know, Billy, you're a blessing to me. And I want to bless you. You're a super son. Thanks. You know, Christmas is a great time to do that. There's good scriptural warrant for it. You know, there's something inside of me. That I go to do that. You ever go to do that with people? Not just with your own kids, but with brothers and sisters in Christ. You ever feel that urge, but you don't do it? Your pride blocks you, doesn't it? I have that happen. I go to say something encouraging. I go to give a blessing, and at Christmas time, let's learn to get over that. And let's learn from this Jewish grandfather. He grabs these big teenage boys, 18, 19 year old, and he's, he, he barely has enough strength, but he embraces them and he kisses them. But he not only does that, he goes on and says this. It says, Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, but now God has allowed me to see your kids. And Joseph removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down. They were, they were very near to him. They weren't sitting on his knees. These are big boys. They would have crushed them. Okay? They bowed down with his face to the ground, and Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right hand and Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left hand towards Israel. Joseph is trying to get this all just right. He's got his kids lined up, but his kids lined up so that Israel's right hand will rest on Manasseh, his oldest boy, and Jacob's left hand will rest on his second son, Ephraim. And he brought them close to him. But look what Israel does. But Israel reached out his right hand, and he put it on Ephraim's head, so he crosses his hands. You see, Joseph is facing him. He gets all the boys lined up just right, so that Jacob just has to reach out and put his right hand on Manasseh's head, and his left hand on Ephraim's head, only when Israel goes to give the blessing, he goes like this. Now remember that. It's another little important little detail that's very important in this story. It says, but Israel reached out his right hand and put on Ephraim's head, though he was younger, and crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. And then he blessed Joseph. You see, Joseph is blessed through his kids. Now look carefully at the blessing. This is an incredible blessing that Jacob gives to his grandsons. May the God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked. The very first thing in this family history that this granddad tells his grandsons is, I want you to remember, your father's before you, 
and your grandfather and your father Joseph, we all walked with God. Now, what does it mean to walk with God? I want to ask you a question this morning. Are you walking with God in your life? Let me talk to the daddies for a minute. Daddies, if we gather your family together around Christmas Eve and we say, hey, Dad, give me your life history. Tell me your life story. Tell me what's important to you. Give us the family blessing. What would you say? Dad, would one of the very first things would, would you say, I've walked with God through my life. Jacob had the unbelievable history of being able to share back through the family. I've shared with you in the past, but it, it helps me to illustrate kind of the impact in a modern sense. You all know that a few years ago, Mary and I and all the kids traveled all the way back up to New, New York City. It's when we had our transmission go out twice and we thought our suburban truck wouldn't make it. And man, we worked like crazy to get to a family reunion. And every single night, every single night, one of the boys would lead the devotional time. And when I led the devotional time, what I led it about was the history of our family and the power of the gospel. You see, one of the neat things that the Lord has given me in my own life, and it's something that I want to continue with my children, and it's something that all of you, if you didn't have your own father to do this, you can start it in your family. It's one thing I can say about my dad is, my dad walked with God. My dad's not perfect. My dad's done some things wrong. But one thing I can say about my dad in my family history is he walked with God. You see, when, when my dad was 18 years old, he was cussing his head off in the National Guard band, playing on a trombone on a horseback, which has to be a little bit crazy. And a guy came to him and started giving him tracks. In fact, the summer before when they went to, to National Guard camp, this guy was sleeping around. He was just drinking like crazy. He was the party-going guy in the, in the company. He was the wild cookie. The next summer he comes and he's handing my dad's gospel to John. My dad tore up those gospels to John, threw it in George Schilling's face over and over again. Finally, he got tired of tearing them up and he put one in his pocket. In the middle of the night when he was about 18, the Lord woke him up. He took that gospel John out and he began to read it. And he read, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. And that night, my family history changed. My dad went from being a dance band director with one of the lead bands in New York City to becoming a child of God that knew Christ. A year later, my mother went to a, a Bible camp. She was tricked by her mother into going to it. She was so mad, like I've shared with you, she was so mad, she said, Mom, if we're not out of here... By the time the morning comes, I'm going to disown you. And her mother said, Margie, you've got to just stay for one night. I'm going to get you out of this place. That night, an evangelist shared the gospel. And my mom invited Christ into her heart. When my mom passed away, I was going through my dad's desk. And I read the letter my mom wrote to my dad that night. And she wrote in the letter how... She had heard that Christ died on the cross for her sins. She wrote in the letter how she heard that it wasn't just good girls that got to go to heaven, but it was forgiven girls. And she wrote to my dad, who was her fiancé at the time, you're probably not going to want to marry me anymore. I'm so scared because you're not going to want one of these religious fanatics. But I just got to tell you that I invited Christ into my heart. 
Little did my mom know that my dad had been chicken for a year. They'd tell her. And he had come to know the Lord a year earlier. You think that night wasn't important at Percy Crawford's camp? You think that moment at a National Guard camp wasn't important for my dad? You see, that's become part of your history. Because I'm probably a born-again believer because God met my dad. And through my dad, the Lord met me. And as the Lord worked in my life, He has met some of you. And all the traditions, all the history goes together. Daddy, do you have that kind of history to share? Maybe some of you really do have that kind of history to share, but you've gotten away from it. In the rough and tumble of traveling around Canaan, you, you've just forgotten about what's really important. Christmas is the time to put your hand on your kid's head and tell them the history of the family. Tell them the moments that are really, really important. Tell them about the times that you learned to walk with God. I'm not talking about joining church. I'm not talking about being religious. I'm talking about learning to walk with God. Second of all, they not only learn to walk with God, but it says here that God has been a shepherd to me all of my life. Jacob could say, the Lord God of heaven was my shepherd, my good shepherd all through life. Incredible thing. This is where Psalm 23 started. Who wrote Psalm 23? King David did. Where do you think he learned the truth? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Where do you think he learned that? It goes way back here. This is the first time in the history of the Old Testament that a man says, God is my shepherd. God was my shepherd. He protected me. He fed me. He took care of me all through life. And then thirdly, he was the angel, the angel of God. The angel of God in the Old Testament is the visible presence of God. It's when God appears in the Old Testament in a human form. It's the pre-incarnate baby in a manger who became Jesus for us. In the Old Testament, he appears to people like Jacob as the angel, the messenger of God, the word of God, you might say, that John chapter 1 picks up on. And here Jacob is able to say that it was the angel of God who was my redeemer. He uses the word redeemer for the first time in the Bible. That word deliver is the word goel, which becomes the key word of the book of Ruth. It becomes one of the key words that Jesus, the son of David, uses to describe his ministry among us. He's our redeemer. The angel of God is the one who redeemed me from all evil, would be a literal translation. May he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly upon the earth. And when Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand and tried to move it, tried to get him to change it. And Joseph said to him, No, my father, this one is the firstborn. But his father refused. I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people. He too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. Jacob blessed his grandsons that day. In your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. In other words, it will become a proverb in Israel. May you have a big family like Manasseh and Ephraim. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph's own son, I'm about to die, but God will be with you. He'll take you back to the land of your fathers, to you as one who is over your brothers. I give the ridge of land, Shechem. The word ridge in Hebrew is the word Shechem. I will give you Shechem 
that I took from the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. The only piece of real estate that Jacob owned was Shechem. And he got it when his sons took the village. It was a very sad time, but now it becomes a blessing. Now, I want you to get this as we close. you really got to understand this. you got to go back in the Old Testament. And I want you to get this setting. What I've been trying to do this morning is, we've been down in Egypt. We're sitting in Egypt and we have the prime minister's sons with an older grandfather that's ready to die. He puts his hand in their head and says, you two boys are going to become a great, great nation. But Ephraim is going to be the powerful one. And your hope Your destiny is not here in Egypt. It's up in the land of Canaan. Now, I'm the ABC News. Ephraim and Manasseh walk out of their house, and I come in with the TV cameras and the microphone. I say, hey, boys, what just happened to you? What do you think about this afternoon? You think it was a significant event? I think Ephraim and Manasseh might have said, man alive, our dad conned us in. Man, I could have been up on the Mediterranean Sea, you know, windsurfing. Am I... My dad has me visiting my grandfather. He's been dying for the last several years. We thought he was going to die 10 years ago, and now he's still living. What's the big deal about it? That's what Ephraim and Manasseh might have been tempted to say. Maybe they did say. Just like some of you. You know, some of you that are sitting here, the Christmas story to you is something that an old, dying grandfather shares with you. Now, stick with me, brothers and sisters, because I'm going to tell you the difference between life and death in the next minute. I'm going to share the difference between a home that's built on faith and a home that's built on just human life. And it's the difference between eternal promise and eternal depression and fear and death. As I say to Ephraim and Manasseh, what was the big deal? They could easily, from a human standpoint, said, listen, I'm into Egypt. I've got chariots. I have position. I've got clothes. My dad's a big wheel. Who cares what my grandfather said? It's one of those white elephant Christmas gifts that I don't know what I'm going to do with it. From a human standpoint, you know, they would have been exactly right. I want you to feel the power of that. From the perspective of their human life, Egypt was the place. Their daddy was prime minister. They had all they could ever want. They were born in Egypt. They lived in Egypt. And that was the important land. And they had this crazy, godly, spiritual grandfather named Jacob who makes him this crazy promise and gives him a gift. I'm going to give you real estate in Canaan. It's like getting swamp land in Florida. The whole thing's underwater. We don't even own it. You know, as the history of the Old Testament unfolds, you know what? Ephraim really did. When I did my doctoral dissertation on the book of Hosea, which was rooted in the northern kingdom about 722, you know what the name of the northern kingdom is? Ephraim. You know what the name of the southern kingdom is? The name of the southern kingdom is Judah, but the name of the northern kingdom is Ephraim. You know where Ephraim's capital was? You know where Ephraim and Manasseh lived as the history of the Old Testament developed? Now listen, this is not something I'm making up. This isn't Sunday school stories. If you go to archaeology class at Harvard, they will have to teach you this as objective fact. 
You know the land that Ephraim and Manasseh occupied in the history of the United Kingdom and then the divided kingdom? You know the land that they owned? It was Shechem. It was the mountains of Samaria around Shechem. And Ephraim became the dominant, most populous, most powerful tribe of the northern kingdom. That's historical fact. You know why? Because brothers and sisters, life is not the way you think it is humanly. The power is in the promise. Now why does God give us that history from the Old Testament? Because the game of God has changed in the New Testament for you. But it's the same challenge of faith. You see, Ephraim and Manasseh's challenge of faith is, boys, will you believe in the promise? Will you believe in God working through a grandfather that met God and could predict what your history was going to be? Or are you going to live for Egypt? And God comes to every one of you families today, and he comes to me and says, Dave, are you going to live just for Egypt? Are you going to live just for this life? Are you going to think it's no big deal to be adopted? But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. As some of you think back over your family history, some of you remember at a Christian camp. Did some of you remember that day? Maybe it was home with your mom and dad. Have you forgotten the significance of the promise when Jesus said, but if you received me, you'll become a child of God. That was when you were adopted into God's family. Just like Ephraim and Manasseh were adopted into Jacob's family. From a human standpoint, it might not seem like that big a deal. In fact, you might not even have felt that much when that happened. But from an eternal perspective, that was the most important adoption that ever took place in all your life. You know what? Jesus came to you and said, you're going to possess a land. You're going to become a prince and a princess. You're going, to, you're going to possess a land. You're going to become one of the promised people in the land not of Canaan, but of heaven. You say, Dave, I've never seen it, either to Ephraim and Manasseh. You say, David, how do I know it's there? Ephraim and Manasseh had never been there either, and they could have asked the same question. But it's history that Israel possessed the land of Canaan. In fact, we're still arguing over who's going to possess that land. And when the Prince of Peace comes, the sons of Jacob will receive their inheritance. What about us? Do you really believe you're going to possess real estate in heaven? Is that part of your family history? I hope it is. And thirdly, do you believe you're going to become a great nation? You say, Dave, we're not Jewish people. No, we're not. God's done something much bigger. God's not just working like he was in the Old Testament with just a national people trying to make a lighthouse just for this one chosen people that could reach out to the darkness of the nations. In the New Testament, God has thrown it open to all of us. And we can all become the people of God. We can all become the mighty nation of the sons of God. The Scripture says that if you believe in Christ like I've been sharing, then you become part of the chosen people. In Christ, we become part of a multitudinous family. We become part of a great family. This morning, Ephraim and Manasseh say, do you believe the promise? Is that your family history? 
Is that what's important to you? You say, Dave, well, I don't have a family that believe that. Why don't you start? Why don't you be the first family member that begins a tradition that's really built on truth? Daddies, will you remember your family history? Will you share it this Christmas time? Moms and dads, will you remember your family history? You know what this has done for me? You see, my faith wavers. What I just share with you, this idea that I've been adopted into heaven, this idea that I've become part of a great multitude called the family, the body of Christ, this idea that I have real estate in heaven, I have a hard time believing that when I stand by the grave of a loved one and a friend. It's hard. And I'm tempted to walk away from the grave and run out into everyday life and just live like this is all there is. But Ephraim and Manasseh, remind me, David, the grandfather's promise about what God promised is the only thing that held together over the centuries of time. And the promise of my son the Lord Jesus is the only promise that will hold together not only the history and the centuries of time, but forever.